All right, so we are back in the letters of Jesus to the churches, and this is letter number five of seven. We've got two more after this, and then we will begin making our way through the rest of the book of Revelation. I hope these letters aren't, aren't getting too redundant for you. I know the pattern is redundant, right? What Jesus says in good things to the church, and then he corrects them, and then he reminds them of what will happen if they don't repent, and he reminds them of what will happen if they do repent. But every one of these letters is written to a unique church in a somewhat unique situation dealing with unique challenges. So this morning, the challenge that we're going to take up is the danger of an empty reputation as a church. A church that looks really good on the outside, but inside is full of what Jesus might say of the Pharisees, dead men, bones, and corruption. It was full of a church of whitewashed tombs, or as I'm calling it this morning, the church of the walking dead. In 2014, Tom Rayner, who was then president of Lifeway Christian Resources, wrote a um, well-known book um, called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. In uh, the, the beginning of that book began as a, as a blog article with the same title, and it eventually turned into a, a full-scale book. But in it, Rayner identifies seven fatal characteristics or causes that put a church that was once alive and vibrant into the grave. And the seven are as follows. Number one, treating the past as the hero. Number two, refusing to adapt to the needs of the present moment. Number three, moving the focus of the budget inward. Number four, allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission. Number five, letting the church become preferential and driven out of selfishness and personal agendas rather than the mission of God. Seeing pastoral tenure decline. Failing to have regular corporate prayer and failing to have no clear purpose or vision, all the while obsessing over the condition of the church facilities. Autopsy studies are common. Another complement to Rayner's precise analysis might be an article that was titled, When Does My Church Need Revival?, in which Stephen Manley highlights six telltale signs that a church may be near death's door. Here are those six. The church is plagued with disagreements. The preaching is ineffective. Few people can remember when a person was last saved. God's supernatural power is not seen. God is not praised regularly. And no one is being called into God's work. Autopsy studies like this are helpful. They're popular. They get a lot of traction on the internet. However, they're really not new because Jesus wrote the first one. In Revelation 3, 1-6. Here, the exalted and glorified Christ performs an autopsy examination on the church at Sardis, and the results are painful, because after looking at them, he says, you are dead. The necrosis was past good conditions at this point. It was spreading and endangering the whole body, but the situation was not past salvaging. And even though their condition was near fatal, if they would listen to the great 
physician's diagnosis, they would and could be healed. Hope was fading and time was running out, and the issue was urgent for the church at Sardis, but it was not beyond cure. And so this morning, we're going to consider how a church that is on the verge of dying can be revived again. Some years ago, Ray Ortland wrote a brief article describing the three simple categories that a church that is beginning to die falls into. He calls this movement, monument, mausoleum. He says, a healthy church is born as a movement, as a burst of gospel energy. It's almost like a Pentecost-like explosion of joy, and such a church has a deep sense of mission and a sense of destiny. It's exciting, and we, we can think of a steep upward trajectory. However, given human weakness, after time, a movement can become a monument. The spirit of the church changes from hunger to self-satisfaction, from eagerness to routine, from daring new steps of faith to maintaining the status quo, from outward to inward. And it's easy not to notice the shift. Think of leveling off. Then, as the trend toward mediocrity continues, and if it is not arrested by the Spirit of God, the church will decline and eventually become a mausoleum or a place of death. The church as an institution may have enough social momentum and financial resources to keep churning on, but as a force for newness of life, it no longer counts. Think of a death spiral, a deep spiritual decline. Of this threefold process of movement, monument, and mausoleum, Ortland writes the following. The responsibility of a church's leaders is to discern when their movement is starting to level off as a monument. It is at this crucial point that they must face themselves honestly and discover why they've lost their edge, go into repentance, and return to the costly commitments that made them great to begin with. They may need to deconstruct much of what they have become, which is painful and embarrassing. But if the leaders will have the humility, clarity, and courage to do this, their church will go into renewal and relaunch as a movement once more. Jesus will become real again, people will be helped again, and those bold, humble leaders will never regret the price they paid. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is calling the church at Sardis to do, is to go through the hard but necessary work of becoming a movement once again. They've long since gone into mediocrity and become a monument, and now they are, in fact, a mausoleum. And Jesus is saying, I'm putting the smelling salts to your nose. It's time to wake up. It's time to get busy. And if you don't, there will be eternal, lasting consequences. So the church at Sardis is a sobering letter, but it's not a letter that's without hope, and it's not a letter that necessarily needs to end poorly. So this morning, what I want us to do is walk through what Jesus says in these brief six verses to this dying church, these truths that are designed, as I said, to be smelling salts that are intended to awaken this dying church. So three ways to revive a dying church is what we're going to look at this morning, and here's the first way that Jesus prescribes. Underplay the external. Underplay the external. Notice in verse 1, the second part of the verse, Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being 
alive. Now, Proverbs 22.1 tells us that it's good to have a good reputation. In fact, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. So what's wrong with having a good reputation? Well, a good reputation is only good to the extent that our good name, our good reputation, accurately represents what's real, who we really are, what's really going on. But that means that there's something powerfully deceptive about a reputation, too, because we can be easily deceived into thinking that if others see us as alive, we must be. But it could be that a church is just a morgue with a steeple. A false reputation can arise from a lot of different places. I've got four, and I'll give them to you quickly. It can, it can arise from nominalism. Nominalism is being a Christian in name only. It's being very active. People can be attending a church. They can regard themselves as Christians, but the substance of the matter isn't there. There's not a real vital relationship with Jesus. Also, there's activism. Busy, busy churches. Busy with lots of things and activities and meetings, but there's an emptiness spiritually there. There's also formalism, which is just concerned with structures and traditions, but not a real passionate love for Christ. And of course, there's legalism, where you can be concerned with comparisons and looking good and playing the part. Nominalism, activism, formalism, legalism, these can all masquerade as evidence that a church is alive when in fact it's not. The church at Sardis was a dead church. Yet this was the kind of, the kind of church that likely would have had a good-sized congregation, a full slate of ministries, a healthy budget, pretty slick website. So can it be possible Lively and dead? According to Jesus, it can be. Notice two things. First, their reputation was with people. He said, you have the reputation of being alive. Well, whose reputation was that with? Probably the people in Sardis. Or maybe even the reputation of the people within their own church. The good names and the good opinions were those of the community. People may have said things about Sardis we might hear today, boy, God's really at work in that place. Look at all that they got going on. They have great programs. Their youth group is really big and cool. They, you should hear the music in Sardis. They're so busy in the community. They do so many good things to help people. Everyone spoke well of the church. Nobody had anything bad to say. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But do the high opinions of men matter when Jesus has a low opinion of you? John Bloom, a writer for Desiring God, says, Our self-perception and other people's perception of us do not reflect or project accurately who we are. They are misleading images because they are in large part imaginations. We aren't who we think, we aren't who we want to think we are or who other people think we are. All we truly are is who we are before God. So notice, not only did they have a great reputation with people, but it's possible to have a great reputation with men while having a bad reputation with God. The opposite is also true. You can have a really bad reputation with people and a really good reputation with God, but the opposite is also true. You can have a really good reputation with people and have a really bad reputation with God. God's opinion of us, believe it or not, is formed on different foundations than men's opinions of us are. A socially 
how do men form opinions, largely? Outward appearance. Right? How do you look? How do you behave? How is God's opinion formed of us? Not on that basis at all. 1 Corinthians 6, or 1 Samuel 16, 7, we know this verse. The Lord does not look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. So a socially distinguished congregation in the eyes of others can be a spiritual graveyard in the eyes of Jesus. He looks at the heart of men. He looks at the heart of a church. This is why, Matt, this is why Jesus could say of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, man looked at Sardis and said, that's a poster church. God looked at Sardis and said, that's a poser church. There's a big difference. Everything was visible in the show window of the church and nothing was in stock. That's the picture we get of this church. The outward displays look great, but then if you were like me when I worked at service merchandise in the late 90s, there's a reason it's out of business. Because when you went there and you got your ticket and you took it to the counter... You had to tell people, I'm sorry, we don't have that in stock. But you've got tickets there. How can you have 15 tickets and nothing in the storeroom? Because that's how we roll at service merchandise. And I had to face the, I mean, onslaught of disappointed, sad customers that chewed me up and spit me out over the course of six months and a delightful holiday season. (laughs) Perhaps we get a hint as to why they were dead based on what Jesus says to them later in chapter 3, verse 5. Look there at the second half of the verse. He says, I will confess his name, that is the name of my true people, before my Father and before his angels. Now, Revelation 3, 5 actually appears to be a combination of two statements that were found on the lips of Jesus. In Matthew ten thirty two, he declared, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. Again, in Luke 12, 8, we read, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So perhaps the reason they were dead is because they weren't confessing Christ to others. Can you see that? Can you see how I got there? If 3, 5 is talking about this promise that if you will confess, I will confess you before God and his angels then perhaps the reason this church had a reputation for being alive but was actually dead is because they weren't willing to get egg on their face for the gospel. Good deeds, many good deeds, will, will, will receive the, the, the praise of the community, will receive a good reputation. But as, And then you start talking about repentance and the need to come to Christ or you're going to go to hell and you need your sins forgiven and all those rough edges of the gospel... Well, then we can back away for the sake of our reputation. But good deeds, many good deeds, do not prove the reality or authenticity of spiritual life. The flesh can produce all that. A church can be outwardly prosperous, busy with the externals of religious activity, and devoid of spiritual life and power. 
we read this in 2 Timothy 3.5, where Paul warns to not have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Or Isaiah 26.13, this people drew near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me. Now, what can we learn from this before we go on to our second point? This whole idea of underplaying the external. We need, to, we need to not think too highly of what other people are saying or thinking. That's not our main criteria for evaluating church health. So first, we need to be leery of reputation and the temptation that comes with it. Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's never a good sign when everyone is saying good things about you. That's a sign of being a false prophet, not a true prophet. True prophets get hated for, for righteous reasons. They don't only get hated. That's not a true prophet either. But there will be a mixture of hatred and reception. Being above reproach in the eyes of others is a good gospel goal. We don't want to put a stumbling block in the way of unbelievers. But we are not trying to procure favor with people. We're trying to love people. That's different. We're not trying to not get them to love God. Therefore, we reject gimmicks and gadgets and goodies to get guests. The criteria by which we want to judge success is faithfulness to Christ and his word. Second, not only do we need to be leery of reputation, but we also need to care more about who we actually are than who people think we are. Let's care more about who we actually are than who people think we are. We want to project by nature a good image of ourselves to the world, make us look good. But the problem comes when we care more about our image than we do about the reality. We want people to admire and respect and like us, so we try to keep up the image we think will do that. And it's at this point in our hearts where what matters most is what other people think about us. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Of the Pharisees, he said in Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Sometimes we want so badly for others to think highly of us that we make sure they see or hear about all the good things that we do. But we must remember that God sees every good thing we do, and if we know that, then we don't need other people to know it. George Ladd said, The church was not troubled by persecution, that is the church at Sardis. It was not disturbed by heresy. It was not distressed by Jewish opposition. It was well known as an, as an active, vigorous Christian congregation characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all these religious activities were a failure because they were only formal and external and not infused with the life-giving Holy Spirit. See, there's the difference. In every letter that we've seen so far, and the, the, the two that are still to come, and every one of these seven letters to the seven churches, the introductory description of Jesus, by Jesus, is suited to the condition of the particular church that he's talking to. Right? We've seen that again and again. When Jesus describes himself at the beginning of whatever letter we're studying, and then he proceeds to move in to, talk, to diagnose and work with that church, the self-designation he gives himself is usually part of the reason that the church is in the condition it's in. They're neglecting to remember those things and live in accord with those things. So we read right here in Revelation 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now remember, as we've seen in our study of Revelation so far, Revelation 1, 4 is the first time we see this phrase, 
seven stars or seven spirits. And we saw there that that refers to the Holy Spirit. Remember the word, the number seven in Revelation is a, is a number of fullness. That's why we have seven letters, the seven churches. It's not that there were only seven churches in the world. It's that these churches are representative of all of Christ's churches for all time. So when it says the seven spirits of God, it's talking about the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars are the seven churches, as we saw in Revelation 1. So what is being drawn to Sardis's attention is that Jesus is the one who has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the stars, the churches. So the scarier thing is that a church can sometimes be like Samson. Remember when he lost his hair? In Judges 16.20 we read, He did not know that the Lord had left him. What a sad place to be. To have the Lord rest heavily upon you and then to not even know when he's gone. But unfortunately churches can be in the same condition. A.W. Tozer once wrote that if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. Now, Tozer was admittedly given to hyperbole. Okay, if you read his sermons and his books, he, was, he tended to exaggerate to make a point. But the point is well taken, and it's, and it's fearful. It's a fearful thing. Could, could we be that, in that condition ever? That the Lord might walk away and... We might not know it. Well, may God never allow that to happen. And to do that, we must plead with the Holy Spirit for him. God's word tells us that we have to pray in the Spirit, Jude 20. Preach in the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Worship in the Spirit, John 4.24. Live in the Spirit, Philippians 3.3. And walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Jesus is referred to in verse 1 as the one who has the seven spirits of God and holds the seven stars which are in his right hand. Think about it. He says, the seven stars are in his right hand. As one writer said, does that mean the Spirit is in his left? And if so, we need to plead that he'll put his hands together. Right? That's what we need to pray. Lord, put your hands together. Keep your Holy Spirit operative and, 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 and powerfully at work in the midst of your churches. John Stott again says, it's the Holy Spirit who can breathe into our formal worship until it comes alive and is real. It is he who can animate our dead works and make them pulsate with life. He can rescue a dying church and make it a living force in the community. Let him once again fill us with his vital presence and our work, worship, and witness will become marvelously transformed. A stale church can be freshened by him and a sleepy church can be awakened. He can strengthen a weak church and he can quicken a dead one. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And this language makes it clear that what Sardis needs is a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit of God. It needs revival. This is what we need to ask for. Every day, as even as our pastor led us in prayer this morning, that God would revive his churches, fill them with his spirit, renew our repentance and our obedience, and by faith receive his filling so that we can continue to live in an attitude of humble dependence on him and obedience to him. See, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that we as a people of God, not only here at Heritage, but also in North America, need less time planning and more time praying. We are a planned church in the United States, boy. And that's a good thing. God's called us to make plans. But we need to pray. 
There needs to be less working for God and more waiting on God. O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. It's exactly what we need to be praying. Or come, Holy Ghost, our souls inspire, and lighten with celestial fire. Thou, the anointing spirit art, who dost thy sevenfold gifts impart. We need that. The hymn goes on to say, Thy blessed unction from above is comfort, life, and fire of love. Enable with perpetual light the dullness of our blinded sight. We need the Spirit, which is why we prayed that this morning in our pre-sermon song, that the Holy Spirit would speak and come to us. So that's underplaying the internal. That's by far the longest point. So the idea that we need to be concerned fundamentally and have reference fundamentally to the Lord and to his word, and not to the reputation of the church, with how, how, what people think about the church, with, with, with doing things for the benefit of, of the church's PR campaign, and, and, and trying to do things so that we'll look good and sound good in the eyes of the community. That, unfortunately, is a temptation, and we need to be aware of it, and we need to be anchored to God and his perspective. Number two, here's the second way to revive a dying church, cultivate the internal. Cultivate the internal. So in underplaying the external, cultivate the internal. This is what he tells them to do. Notice what he says in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So the general solution, as we've seen in all of these letters, is repentance. Let me share with you a story of an eyewitness account of the Korean revival of 1907 that gives a wonderful picture of what happens when the Holy Spirit descends upon a people and grants them repentance. Here's the words of that eyewitness testimony of the Korean revival of 1907. The evening meeting connected with the Bible conference began January 6th in the central church with more than 1,500 present. The group was only men. Women were excluded for lack of room. Different missionaries and Korean leaders had charge of the evening meetings, all seeking to show the need of the Spirit's control in our lives and the necessity for love and righteousness. After a short sermon, man after man would rise, confess his sin, break down and weep, and then throw himself on the floor and beat the floor with his fists, fists in a def- per- perfect agony of conviction. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out into audible prayer, and the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out into uncontrollable weeping, and we would all weep together. We couldn't help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 a.m. with confession and weeping and praying. We prayed for God for an outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon the people, and he had come. Then began a meeting, the like of which I have never seen before nor wish to see again, unless in God's sight it's absolutely necessary. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale and trembling with emotion and agony of mind and body, guilty souls standing in the white light of their judgment saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness until shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out the face of man forgotten. Looking up to heaven to to Jesus whom they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried with bitter wailing, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten. Nothing else mattered. 
The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seem a small consequence if only God forgave. We may have other theories of the desirability and undesirability of public confession of sin. I have had mine. But I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession and no power on earth can stop it. Now, that's no doubt if you read something of the stories of early Korean revivals in the 1900s, you'll, you'll not be surprised that Korea, I believe, Pastor Keith could probably correct me on this, but is second only to the United States in the number of missionaries it sends out. And that's no doubt in, because the Holy Spirit has rested powerfully upon the church of Korea um, for, you know, decades. And when the Spirit rests in power upon a people, they will send people out to take the gospel to other nations as well. Now, Jesus gives us four indicators here of what repentance would look like for the church at Sardis, and I want to go through those quickly. The first thing he tells the church to do in verse 2 is wake up. Now, us as parents know all too well about that command. We've said that a lot, haven't we? Wake up! (laughs) Wake up! Well, when we say that to our kids, what we're calling them to do is shake off their lethargy get out of bed, get alert, and get active. And that's what Jesus is telling this church to do. He's saying, shake off your guilty fears, your spiritual lethargy, shrug off your indifference, get alert, and leap into action. Being asleep means they weren't alert. They were not being self-controlled. They're not living by faith. They're not being loving. They're not living with intentional hope. They were living, they weren't really living for holiness. They weren't alert for the enemy's activity. They weren't preoccupied with eternity. They weren't looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Their faith was, for for lack of a better term, full of ignorance. And their lives were full of immoral living. And as Romans 13, 11, and 12 says, the hour has come for you to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So wake up. Second, strengthen what remains. Now this is a call to rescue what they can. The church is on fire. Go in and save whatever you can. Peel back the layers. To to mix another metaphor, let's step away from the, the, the house on fire to look at, you know, the HGTV remodeling version, okay? They need to go in, they need to peel back the years of dry rot, and they need to salvage whatever they can. That's the picture. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. See, he's not calling them to have endless tears of regret or promises of reform. They're not, they're, 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 there are no more effective, those, those promises, those tears are no more effective than fig leaves. What he's calling them to do is say, collapse on Jesus again. He's your covering, he's your peace, he's your righteousness, he's your hope, he's your freedom, he's your joy. And when we arise after collapsing on him, get to work. Teach, disciple, love, love this church to life. Bring these embers to a flame. Strengthen what remains. The third thing is to remember what you've received and heard. That is, recommit to the gospel. Recommit to the word of God as essential. See, this church had gotten off course, 
and we're losing sight of the very teachings that made them so vital and essential to begin with. You know, remembering is so important in the Christian life. Hebrews 2.1 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Keep remembering. Keep coming back to what you heard at first. Remembering what you've received means to refresh yourselves again in the teachings that have been handed down from the apostles. Communion reminds us of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. The apostle Peter reminded the believers again and again of things they already knew. And Paul did as well. Fourth, keep it. So he says, wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you've received and heard, and keep it. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's not sufficient just to remember God's word. We have to obey what we hear. Jesus said in verse 2 that their works were not complete in the sight of God. What does that mean? Well, it means they weren't fulfilled. They didn't go all the way. They didn't live up to the reality that Jesus intended. These are fraternal twin enemies that Jesus draws our attention to in this church. Those twin enemies are the conservative enemy of conversion without action and the liberal enemy of action without conversion. Theological conservatives can tend to equate knowledge of the gospel with obedience to the gospel, therefore receiving, hearing, but not keeping. And theological liberals tend to try to keep everything apart from receiving and hearing and knowing the gospel. The New Testament will not let us live that way. Faith apart from works is dead, and works apart from faith is dead. We have to have both. We have to have faith that's leading to works. This is why James writes in James two fourteen to 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implication is no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, works are equated here in James with giving special attention to the poor, the needy, the weak, and the vulnerable among us. But it's rooted in faith in Christ because he too gives special attention to the weak and poor and needy and vulnerable. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in 1741 wrote a work called The Distinguishing Marks of the Spirit of God. In other words, how can you tell if revival has happened? And uh, he, in that book, he indicates four ways that we can know that God is at work among a people, and I want to give you those. He says, one, when our esteem of Jesus is being raised so that we prize him more highly than all this world. Number two, when we are moving away from Satan's interests, away from sin and worldly desires. Three, when we are believing, revering, and devouring the Bible more and more. Four, and most importantly, when we love Jesus and one another more, delighting in him and in one another. See, Satan can not only not produce those things, he wouldn't if he could. So opposite are they from his nature and purposes. J.I. Packer wrote something similar in 1987 in his book, God in Our Midst when he proposes that among a variety of God's ways, five constants appear in biblical revivals. And aren't you playing, praying for revival these days? I mean, really, the only option is revival or revolution, right? So we need to be praying for revival. And I'm trusting God for it, asking God for it, with all the mess and craziness that revivals bring. But here's what J.I. Packer says that are five constants that appear in biblical revivals. Number one, an awareness of God's presence. 
he says, the first and fundamental feature in renewal is the sense that God has drawn awesomely near in his holiness, mercy, and might. Two, responsiveness to God's word. The message of scripture, which previously was making only a superficial impact, Packer says, now searches its hearers and readers to the depth of their being. Three, sensitivity to sin. Conscience has become tender and a profound humbling takes place. Fourthly, liveliness and community. Packer says, love and generosity, unity and joy, assurance and boldness, a spirit of praise and prayer, and a passion to reach out to win others are recurring marks of renewed church communities. And then fifthly, he says, fruitfulness and testimony. Christians proclaim by word and deed the power of new life, souls are one, and a community conscience informed by Christian values emerges. And that was what we saw happen in that Korean revival that I read earlier in 1907. Those were some of the marks that came with it as well. Jesus says the opposite, that if these things don't happen, there are consequences. He says in the middle of verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is a warning of imminent judgment to the church at Sardis. He will come without warning. We read similar words in Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. 1 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.2 and 3, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So we need to cultivate the internal. We need to seek the Lord. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember what we have received and heard and strive to keep it in obedience to Christ. Those things will prevent a church from becoming a mausoleum. Thirdly and finally, pursue the eternal. Pursue the eternal. Underplay the external, cultivate the internal, pursue the eternal. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 4. Yet... You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Now, it didn't mean they had an accident. It means that they have kept themselves from the contamination and defilement of sin, at least the sin that's described in this letter. Only a few church members were not soiled means that the majority had fallen into sinful ways of the immoral city of Sardis. But God always keeps a remnant even in a dead church. I mean, you could go to any, any church that has closed its doors, or the, and you will find people who love Jesus. God always has his people there. We see this in Genesis 6-5, don't we? When God saw the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of human hearts were only evil continually, yet there was a man named Noah who was righteous, blameless in his generation. And even in the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a righteous lot who, according to 2 Peter 2.7, was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. In Elijah's day, remember in 1 Kings 19.18, there were 7,000 in Israel that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And then, even in the evil days preceding the birth of Christ, as we considered a couple of weeks ago, you had those like Anna who were waiting for the redemption of Israel in Luke chapter 2, verse 38. So be encouraged. God will never 
abandon his true people. And there, were all, there were always, you will always find his true people even in the darkest situations. Those who have not soiled their garments then, Jesus offers four promises. And he, in doing this, he's calling the rest of the church at Sardis to listen in and to do what they're doing. He's saying, he gives them four promises and look at, let's look at them quickly. People who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me, verse 4. They will walk with me. They will be with me forever. Eternal fellowship with Christ is promised to these people. They will walk with Jesus. Notice also, he says they will walk, but they'll be, doing, they'll be wearing something. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now this is clothing that's testifying to their pure and blameless life. White robes were also given to be worn on festive occasions and at victory celebrations. Third, notice what he says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. They have assurance, they have eternal life, life everlasting. Now, I want you to look at two verses quickly. In the latter part of Revelation, turn to Revelation 13, and I want you to notice verse 8. Revelation 13, verse 8, where we read something slightly different. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking about the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Interesting. Turn over to chapter 17 and look at verse 8. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So, in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8, we've got a guarantee that people whose names have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world will make it to life everlasting. And then in Revelation 3, 5, we have a requirement that they persevere. Now, John Piper explains the tension here. Having our name in the book of life from the foundation of the world seems to mean that God will keep you from falling and grant you to persevere in allegiance to him. This fits with Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes, I will not erase his name from the book of life. The triumph required in 3, 5 is guaranteed in 13, 8 and 17, 8. This is not a contradiction. If you conquer, God will not erase your name. And to state the assurance, if your name is written, you will conquer. God's written down ones really must conquer and really will conquer. One side highlights our responsibility. The other highlights God's sovereignty. And that's the comfort. See, we really do have to conquer, and if we belong to Christ, we really will conquer. So one produces seriousness, and one produces security. That's the way the Bible always handles us in this age. Seriously secure. When the disciples returned to Jesus celebrating their victory over the power of the devil, our Lord responded by alerting them to an even greater, more glorious, indescribably reassuring truth in Luke 10.20. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the 
most precious promise we can receive. We're going to walk with Jesus in white, and our names are never going to be blotted out of the book of life? And then fourthly and finally, they will be acknowledged before God the Father by Jesus Christ. This is personal declaration from Jesus in heaven that you are his friend. Can you imagine what that day will be like? According to Hebrews 2.11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He rejoices that we are his, and he happily speaks each name with delight and satisfaction. Jesus says, I will confess his name, singular, not their names, his name before the Father and the angels. Listen, brothers and sisters, people on earth may forget and will forget your name. Or feel uneasy in your presence or reluctantly concede your accomplishments. But there is more than merely hearing your name called as if a teacher, teacher's taking role. This is not like Jesus standing at the front of the class, reeling off one name after another, to which we respond, Yo, here, present. No, this is an open, glad hearted, public acknowledgement of Jesus owning you of you belonging to him, and of him belonging to you. This is what each of us who know him will experience one day. Without reservation or qualification, he will speak your name and my name before his Father and the angels. Now envision that scene as we close. You are standing in the blazing presence of the immeasurable and unfathomable God and all-consuming fire the God of infinite and unending glory, the God of the unsearchable and incomparable righteousness, small, frail, weak, you stand there. Jesus takes hold of your hand and leads you up before the Father and beneath the penetrating gaze of myriads and myriads and myriads of angels. He proudly and happily and joyfully and confidently declares Father, Neil Tong's mine. Tom Pope's mine. Jamie Dixon's mine. Tim Hoke's mine. Keith Maddy's mine. John Lynn's mine. Amy Chafisi's mine. Jason Houston's mine. Thad Gunderson mines. Gary Boswell's mine. Cliff Boswell's mine. Mike Rhodes' mine. Can you imagine claiming your name personally? saying, he's mine, I'm his, he's clothed in white, I've paid his debt or her debt, I've suffered her penalty, she's clean, he's pure, she's in me, I'm in him, I'm in her. They are righteous. Brothers and sisters, rest in this. If you know his name, he knows yours. And it's that that will encourage this church, and I pray our church, to never be satisfied with an empty reputation. Not when we have a God like this. Not when we have a, a Jesus who walks with us and a name that will never be blotted out of heaven and a future that is indescribably glorious. We will not be content to merely go through the motions and play Christianity. We're going to have the real thing because we've got the real Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these sober, sobering words to the church at Sardis that were also full of rich comfort to a church that was on the verge of having her doors closed 
both spiritually and really. Nevertheless, you came and said, wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember what you've heard, keep my word, and you will walk with me, and you will dwell with me in white, and your name will never be blotted out of the book of life, and you will be with me forever, and I will acknowledge you and your name before my Father in heaven. What a glorious promise. May you encourage our hearts today. When all around our soul gives way, may you then be all our hope and stay. And may we never forget what you have done. Thank you for this reminder this morning. Equip us this week to live as your people, faithfully representing you in this world, never being content with merely an empty reputation, but always striving for the reality that is found by the power of your Holy Spirit alone. Fill us afresh, we pray, Spirit, this morning and dismiss us in your power. We ask this in the name of our mighty and risen King Jesus. Amen. As we sang earlier.